that unleashes genes that promote plasticity. And therefore, we're doing a lot of associative processing. And so the, the images we see are disparate, strange, but they're, con- they're doing these connections between things we don't usually connect. And in that state, a lot of musicians, a lot of poets, a lot of mathematicians see solutions to problems they've been facing, literally see it. Welcome back to Experable. I'm your host, Krati Mehra. And in this show, we learn from the success and struggles of people we admire and dive deep into concepts that help us expand the possibilities available to us so we can freely, boldly design the life we desire, discover the depth and breadth of our capabilities, access the wisdom available in the world around us, and even on really bad days, love what we see in the mirror. Are you ready? Let's go. In today's episode, I'm sharing with you my conversation with Dr. Patrick McNamara. Dr. McNamara is a distinguished professor of psychology at North Central University. He also holds positions with the departments of neurology at the University of Minnesota and Boston University School of Medicine. He is a founding editor of Religion, Brain and Behavior, the flagship journal for the emerging field of neuroscience of religion. He's also a co-founder of the Institute for the Biocultural Study of Religion, which is a non-profit research institute dedicated to the study of the neurologic and evolutionary correlates of religious beliefs, behaviors, and practices. Dr. McNamara is also the editor of Where God and Science Meet and Science and World's Religions and the author of The Neuroscience of Religious Experience and numerous other publications on the neurology and psychology of religion. It's what drew me to Dr. McNamara's content, the fact that he combines science with religion, because there is a lot that we experience in the world personally and that we witness happening around us that cannot be explained only with science. And religion, I think, is a great source of power if channeled correctly. And Dr. McNamara, through his content, is doing a lot to make it so people can make religion a part of their life in a way that actually serves them. We talk more about that in today's amazing conversation. You're going to learn about REM sleep and what it can do for your creativity, productivity, and performance, how we can channel its power and that of lucid dreaming, what happens when REM sleep intrudes into waking consciousness, using psychedelics to expand our cognitive capabilities and our perception, and how spirituality and religious experiences affect our brain and the healthiest way to approach religion and its practices so it adds to our understanding of the world and also makes us more effective individuals. I really, really hope you'll enjoy this conversation and you'll find it as informative and educational as I did. In the episode description, you will find links to some of Dr. McNamara's videos and other content that I have found extremely fascinating and very, very educational. So if you want to go deeper into certain topics that we discuss during the episode, the videos that I've shared in the episode description will definitely help. And now let's dive into the conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Patrick McNamara for being here. I've watched all of your videos. I've read almost all of your articles and all of it is so fascinating from REM sleep to how religious experiences affect our brain. But what I have learned about REM sleep and using our dreams to enhance our creativity or use them to add to our creativity makes me wonder if it is possible for two people, like people like uh, all of these great musicians, uh, all of these great artists, Michelangelo, Picasso, all of these people, though their level of creativity was something extraordinary. 
do you think if people could tap into like this idea that is propagated accessing the full potential of your brain do you think if everyone could do that we would create at the same level of the way the genius is that like could we access mm. that level of creativity i don't know but i i definitely know that accessing uh your dreams and or learning more about rem sleep biology we can enhance our creativity in very significant ways so it's a it's a realm of neurobiology and cognitive science that um is as yet untapped in terms of the creativity field beyond the fact that we know that it's absolutely fundamental to creativity without rem sleep it's unlikely you'd you'd have any kind of creativity as we normally understand it anyway may i ask how did you arrive at this point of research like make this the focus of your research sure um when i was in university i was exposed to a course that covered rem sleep as it was known then this was like 30 years ago and i must say that even though we've learned a ton about rem sleep since then the fundamental mystery concerning rem sleep is still there and what i learned at that time is that every 90 minutes during sleep we go into this brain state that we call rapid eye movement sleep and during that state the eyes move around laterally and rapidly that's where it gets its name under the closed eyelids but at the same time our brain is intensely activated more activated than it is during normal waking consciousness okay. so this is the the time of the 24 hour day where our brains are doing the most work during this period of rem sleep and nevertheless even though our brains are extremely activated our body is paralyzed so we cannot move you know every 90 minutes we can't move and yet our brains are very intensely activated but that's not all rem sleep is also associated with um these things we call autonomic nervous system storms so our physiologies are in upheaval so our physiologies are going wild our brain is intensely activated but our bodies are paralyzed but that, but again that's not all The other thing that's going on is that our sexual systems are intensely activated. So males get erections for the entire duration of REM sleep and females the clitoris gets engorged and there's something called pelvic thrusting for the entire duration of REM sleep. Um so you got this situation every 90 minutes we go into this brain state very highly activated doing enormous amounts of computational information processing. and yet we're paralyzed and yet we're sexually activated and then to top it all off we're forced to watch these things we call dreams now why would mother nature produce such a brain state you know yeah. like what could possibly be the evolutionary function of something like that if you're paralyzed yeah. you're going to be eaten by predators you know so yes. it makes no evolutionary sense so this is a massive mystery in evolutionary biology and that's what got me interested in it. Okay. Okay, that's that's actually very fascinating. Understanding how your brain works, understanding its capabilities. Do you think is there any way for us to channel it in any effective way? Like we have heard about Tesla and Edison using their sleep to come up with ideas. 
But when you read those articles, it seems like they just had to close their eyes and they could right away tap into it. But for the rest of us, it is not that easy. So what does that process look like? Is there a way for us to consciously channel that power? Yeah, I think so. Um, And we're finding out better and better ways to do it. When we go to sleep, we go through basically three or four stages of sleep called N1, N2, N3, and then slow wave sleep. And during the first stage, we go through something called hypnagogia experiences. Our our brain goes into the state where it's got this intense, what we call cholinergic activity going on. So that unleashes genes that promote plasticity. And therefore, we're doing a lot of associative um, processing. And so we start the, the images we see are disparate, strange, but they're con- they're doing these connections between things we don't usually connect. And in that state, a lot of musicians, a lot of poets, a lot of mathematicians see solutions to problems they've been facing. Literally, see it. So what a lot of people have been doing is just setting the alarm clock so that when you go into stage N1, you wake up and you have all those images right before you. And then you can use those images to free associate to them and then enhance your creativity. Now there are some smartphone apps that can detect when you go into N1 and automatically wake you up and you can tap that creative potential that way. REM sleep is a much more intense example of hypnagogic sleep. So if you really want to tap creativity, you want to get to REM. But, the, but N1 sleep is still um, also a very creative brain state that we can tap very easily. And most people don't do it. Okay, so when you say tap very, into very easily, what does that mean? It means simply uh, waking up after you've been in in one sleep for a few minutes so that when you wake up, you immediately are suffused and immersed in all those images that were in your brain during in one stage sleep. And since you you can easily recall all those images, you can use them for the creative process. Okay, okay. I'm beginning to get the idea here. But do you think that would, if you're waking up, every few periods, do you think that would affect the quality of sleep we are getting and well, therefore that's, yeah. our performance? That's the trade-off. Well, yeah, it's the trade-off. In the, in the long run, I mean, you can't do it every night, but, but you can do it occasionally. And if, if you look into the biographies of many creative writers, they discovered this spontaneously. You know, they knew that as they started to fall asleep, they would be immersed in this sea of images that that were that was wild, you know, like untamed, you know, just a sea of images. And so they knew if they could recall those more carefully, they could get more creative ideas. And there's dozens of examples of uh, writers doing that, for example, and painters. Like many of the surrealists use that technique quite often. Okay, so... This process seems very independent in itself. Like this is something anybody can access regardless of your age, regardless of who you are. But do you think brain health, your overall brain health would impact it? Well, again, like you were alluding to just a second ago, if you do it too much, if you do it every night, you know, at some point it's going to impact the quality of your sleep and then you get diminishing returns over time. So, yeah, you can't be be tapping it all the time, but you can tap it on a semi- regular basis once a week or you know something like that 
and then you don't pay too high a price. It doesn't interfere with your sleep that much. It's just a balancing act. Okay, and I recently read something about napping, uh, it increasing the size of your brain. Is there mm. any truth to it? Does that impact uh, how much of like the potential that we can tap into where our brain is concerned? Uh, I'm not sure um, napping per se increases the size of your brain. What it probably, what probably that study that you saw showed was that it confers some protective effect on um, right. brain structure and function, so that people who engage in naps over time, when you compare their brain structure and function to people who do not or who have um, sleep um, deprivation to some extent, the ones who nap do better. You know, they, their cognitive abilities are preserved longer than the ones who don't nap. I think those are the more reliable findings. Um, but there is evidence that sleep, um, the, the, the hippocampus in particular, gen generates new cells during sleep. And also, uh, sleep is also associated with clearance of all kinds of bad things from your system. So without sleep, all these bad chemicals and these dead cells and all kinds of other bad things won't get washed out. So you need sleep to wash out your nerve, central nervous system, basically, and reset it. So there are all these health benefits to sleep that, um, you know, reinforce um, health and cognitive function. Okay. I think that's good to know because with the, the amount of performance that people dem are demanding of themselves, I think sleep has importance all its own. But anytime we are pushed for time, we take away from our sleep. So that's very helpful to know. I also know that like you've researched the way nightmares affect our brain and we're talking about REM sleep, mm -hmm. but I have to wonder using REM sleep to channel our creativity. But in from personal experience, like I think this is something we all share. And if we've watched a horror movie, that's likely to mm -hmm. affect what we see, like what we dream when we're asleep. And if mm -hmm. we are someone who is going through like an anxious period or we have undergone some severe trauma, that is bound to affect, I, I, I would say that that would affect the kind of dreams we have. So Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so how would that show up in a creative process? Can people with uh, severe trauma, can people who have a lot of nightmares also use that for creative process to enhance performance or would that, or is that a draining process from, for them? Yeah, I don't think, um, I mean, you'd have to ask them, but I don't think you can, you can use uh, the images from nightmares. Uh, uh, well, on the other hand, look at uh, Stephen King novels. Right, right. He claims that many of, many of the ideas for, his horror stories come from his nightmares. So there's an example of somebody using imagery from nightmares to generate, uh, you know, extraordinary fiction. But in general, I, pro I think I wouldn't advise trying to use your nightmare imagery as a source of creativity unless it over time um, reduces the distress you feel from nightmares. In general, you want to get rid of nightmares. They're, they don't do a lot of good, at least in my opinion, um, from what I've seen of my patients and um, people I've worked with with nightmares. So, And there's many ways. I mean, people who have frequent nightmares tend to be creative people. 
we don't know why. Um, we think they have when they they score on on questionnaires that uh, assess what are known as boundaries. That is the um, inhibitory power in your brain. Um, they they score in the range of having thin boundaries. So they don't have as much inhibitory power as people without nightmares. And so they're, um, if they have trauma or, or difficult experiences, it's more difficult for them to regulate those experiences than people without nightmares. So um, they're more vulnerable to the distress associated with those scary images, you know. Okay, but then I have to wonder if, like, in, during coaching, we meet a lot of, like, a lot of the clients, we invest, like, a significant period of time trying to get them to come out of that trap that they have themselves and where they're overthinking, where they're just completely indulging the anxiety they feel from day to day, or they're almost reveling in the trauma that they've experienced. Like, it's become so familiar mm-hmm. to them that they don't quite know how to experience anything else. What that has to have an impact on your, like it has an impact on your mental performance. I'm guessing it would impact your brain health also. Or do you think like we are wasting our brain resources because you just uh, correlated nightmares to enhanced creativity to like people being more creative who have nightmares. So if while we are awake, we are constantly anxious, overthinking, do you think that affects our brain uh, resources, the way we utilize our brain's power? I, I think people find themselves um, going through periods of intense suffering or anxiety or distress or pain, and they, they're they given a choice when they go through these very difficult periods, and they can either be um, destroyed by it or, dis- you know, completely disheartened and be, you know, uh, victimized by it, or they can say, okay, I'm going through this. It sucks to be blunt, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and yeah. now, and now what can I do? And, you know, so then you take that energy, that pain, those scary images, the distress, and you mm-hmm. try to turn, turn it to good. You try to turn it to something creative or eventually try to um, work through each of those emotional memories and then let go of them one by one. And, and it, you know, slowly step by step, get through it and learn some wisdom from the experience. I mean, what other choice do we have? Everybody goes yeah. through difficult times, you know? So the, the task is to find a way through it in such a way as to enrich your life, your creativity and those around you. Right. Okay. In your videos around REM sleep and creativity, I found this question in the comment section that was very interesting to me. How does one trigger lucid dream states? apart from keeping a dream log to spot patterns in. It's not something we've talked uh, about uh, yet. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. There are many, many methods for triggering lucid dream states. So, uh, you know, for your audience, lucid dream states are when you are aware that you're dreaming. Right. And for some people, you can use that to enhance your creativity in all kinds of ways. Like, for example, if a person has been dealing with um, nightmare images, they can go into a lucid state and then literally confront the monster and say, why are you chasing me all the time? You know, go away kind of thing. And, and often it works. Um, so um, there, are, there are good reasons to try to cultivate lucid dreams uh, for some people. 
So there are many ways to do it. The most reliable way after decades of research is the most simplest way, and that is to um, practice during the daytime for a couple of weeks. Just ask your question, am I awake or am I dreaming? So that it becomes such a, a habituated question, you know, that every day you've been doing this several times a day for a couple of weeks. Then you find yourself doing it in your dreams. And then asking that question in one of your dreams starts to wake you up during the dream. And then you suddenly realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in a dream, you know, and then you're lucid. That's the, that's the most effective way. There are, other, there are other techniques that are being developed, but that's the most effective way. So lucid dream states would be different from REM sleep, right? Yeah. Most lucid dream states take place during REM sleep, though. Okay, okay. Lucid dream states, that sounds kind of like the plot of the movie Inception. Like- yeah. That was all about lucid dream states and having dreams within dreams yeah okay that's that's very fascinating so we hear all of these ideas about reprogramming your subconscious about during your sleep planting these ideas in your head that would then change the way you experience reality is that something that can be done during REM sleep or during lucid dreams what is the key to all of that because the ideas that are populating uh, Instagram or uh, all of these blogs they seem very like they're they're too simplified at least that's that's how it seems considering what they're proposing that can be done how would you describe that process reprogramming your subconscious is that something that we can really do i don't know about reprogramming the subconscious but um experimental uh dream researchers definitely can implant content into your dreams there's no question about it uh and it's for good and for ill You know, because um, the technique has become so reliable that I signed and dozens of other dream researchers signed a letter um, to the scientific community saying um, this needs to be looked at and opposed because a lot of um, companies are going to start using these techniques to implant the desire to buy their products. You know, so we we don't want dream science to be used for these kinds of nefarious purposes. But my point is that dream science has progressed to such an extent that, yes, we now know that we can implant content, ideas, beliefs, images into dreams and for them to persist in dreams and possibly subsequently affect behavior. So that's a problem. It's also an opportunity, but it's a problem too. Okay, so there is something to this idea that we need to be very mindful of the thoughts that we take to our bed or the thoughts that dominate us while we are awake because they are likely to also affect us while we are sleeping. And as you said, like during REM sleep, your brain, the plasticity goes up, which means the brain would be more absorbent of those ideas. Well put, yep. I think that's correct, yeah. Um, REM sleep seems to be the brain's preferred method of dealing with highly significant events or intense emotional um, memories. So whenever we have um, something emotionally significant happen in our lives, 
it gets processed whether we like it or not in REM sleep. Okay. And so our our REM sleep and dreams are constantly dealing with taking emotional memories and shaping them in such a way that they get processed into long-term memory, thereby influencing our subsequent behavior. There's no other way to learn from past behaviors except by processing these emotional memories, and REM sleep seems to be the preferred system to process emotional memories of high significance. Okay, now I have a bunch of questions. And I know that would also lend credibility to this idea that if you can keep your environment clean, if you clean in the sense that like better thoughts, purer thoughts, or just have experiences that are more positive in their nature, then that would, I'm guessing that would also show up in the creativity that you can channel through REM sleep. Well, to the extent that those are emotionally significant events, probably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there have been even... um, even neutral events show up in our dreams. And it, it, it tends to take about a five-day period for them to show up in our dream content. So over that five-day period, the brain is um, taking pieces of some event in your life, breaking it down into digestible pieces, and then um, working on them in such a way to provide certain context to them and then um, storing them into long-term memory systems, and then they pop up in our dreams. And we, and we have a dream, and, um, and, and we say, okay, there's this image in the dream, that image, that image. Huh, image number three, I remember that from five days ago. Okay. You know, but all the other images seem random, but, you know, one or two we can trace back to five days previously. So we know that this processing is occurring in our brains okay. and in our dreams. And it takes, you know, it takes five, to seven days. Five to seven days. That's actually interesting because if you're working on like a large project, you can mull over certain ideas and then maybe during REM sleep, you can start connecting them over a period of time and channel your REM sleep to actually create something better than you would have created had you done it during your waking hours completely. Um, possibly. Yeah. I don't know if any studies that have done that, but yeah, I don't, I don't see why not. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe my audience can do it. Maybe I can do it because that yeah, sounds interesting. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, okay. So there is something that I've experienced in my life. Um, so ever since I was a kid, I was a very lonely kid. I used to hear voices. Like whenever I would be extremely distressed, there would be a voice in my head. I never talked about it. When I grew up, I experienced extreme depression and I found the support group of people. During depression, the voices got louder and they got way violent. They were never violent or ugly before. But in this group, I met people who have voices in their head and they have like 20, 30 voices. Some people have voices that warn them against imminent disasters that help them save lives, which is crazy. But... If you are hearing these voices, when you're asleep, for me at least, they would become also very visual. They would, it Mm. it would almost be like they have more power. So during depression, because they were so negative, I would avoid sleeping because they were very, very extreme experiences. And I've never had the opportunity to ask someone who has the kind of knowledge that you do, what is that about? Like, do you think that has something... Of course, it has to do something with the emotional experiences because right now, right now I'm healthy. 
I'm no longer hearing those voices. I'm all good. But those other people, they hear them constantly. And for some of them, it's not, they say that it has nothing to do with our, our regular life. They're warning us against disasters. Like we're hearing God helping us out, something like that. <laughs> so so mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. any idea what that's, <laughs> what that's about? There are many answers to that question. Um, right. From the point of view of a spiritual person, not from a scientist. I mean, a scientist can be very spiritual, of course, but yes. but you know, from a non-materialist point of view, from a standard spiritual perspective, I see no reason not to take seriously the prospect that um, God or quote-unquote angelic entities um, or other supernatural agents might be real and might be providing this individual with real um, actionable information. On the other hand, one should proceed with extreme caution when um, you are hearing voices, like extreme caution. Because uh, even if these entities are real, very often they're like the ones you had, they're saying bad things, you know? And you don't want to listen to them. So that's the first part of the answer. Let's assume that the entities okay. have some reality. Then you, you need to use discernment and not listen to the bad voices and listen to the good voices and always be in touch with a spiritual director or a counselor or um, a doctor, etc. cetera. Um, yes. Now, uh, from a scientific point of view, uh, nobody knows what's going on when people are hearing voices, but there are lots of theories. One theory that um, links it and roots it in REM sleep is that REM sleep, um, as I described to you, is this highly associative state, this highly creative yes. state. And sometimes it gets what we call disinhibited so that it starts to intrude into waking consciousness. And you see that in disorders like narcolepsy, where um, the physiology of REM sleep enters waking consciousness, and they literally fall asleep right before your eyes. But before they do so, they hallucinate because they're literally dreaming during the daytime, and they and they hallucinate all these supernatural agents, and they're hearing all kinds of voices, the characters talking in the dreams. So um, one explanation about what's going on when you're hearing voices is you've got REM sleep intruding into waking consciousness, and you're literally living out these dreams that happen to you spontaneously with all kinds of characters coming from all kinds of memories and all kinds of innovative, creative scenarios. So what to do? So let's say REM sleep is contributing to good and bad dissociative states and voices. Then what do you do? Well, there are medications that can help regulate REM sleep states and put it back to where it's supposed to be, you know, during sleep so that it doesn't intrude into waking consciousness. And there are cognitive behavioral techniques that help with that as well. So, um, There are medications that people with narcolepsy take that do that. There are medications people with frequent nightmares take that can do that, can re-regulate REM sleep. 
Um, so there are lots of different ways to handle these dissociative states. And a person doesn't have to live with them if they don't want to. That's interesting. But do, I do wonder the people who have a lot of such experience, like for them, for some of these, the members of this group, it's almost constant. It's never not mm -hmm. a part of their life. I wonder if that affects your brain. Like, it, it, does it change your brain in any way? Or does it change the your the, the way you experience reality? Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think if you ask most of these individuals, and I've worked with quite a few, to, few of them, they say one thing that's particularly distressing to them is they sometimes don't know what's real and unreal. You know, they're constantly having to check what's real, what's unreal. You know, that's pretty scary. Of course. Um, so there's that. And then, as you pointed out, a lot of the times the voices are, uh, they're persecuting the individual. They're saying, you're no good. Yeah. You know, you're awful. You're terrible. Blah, blah, blah. You know, they're attacking the poor individual, you know, and, and who needs that? You know, like, right. obviously, that kind of experience is going to wear somebody down, you know. Yes. But the good news is that there are, you know, for example, a lot of the antipsychotic um, medications affect what are known as 5-HT2A signaling, uh, receptor signaling systems. These are serotonergic signaling systems that also regulate REM sleep. So, um these antipsychotic agents do what we were just talking about. They re-regulate REM, and then all these delusional states start to subside. And then many of the antidepressants work by suppressing REM sleep. So um, oh, okay. they work too. Okay. So one doesn't have to live with those voices always haranguing you. Right. There is the, a cost to taking antipsychotic drugs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I, a lot of these people, when they first went to the psychologist or a psychiatrist, they were diagnosed with schizophrenia or yeah. some a disorder like that. When they are actually contributing members of society, they have normal sure. functioning, except for when these they have these incidents. Except for that, they are completely okay. They're they're healthy people, but they were diagnosed with all of these terrible mental disorders, and they were given psych antipsychotic drugs, and that completely. They're heavy their drugs. They're very They're heavy, heavy drugs. drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, hopefully we'll find um, drugs with less side effects soon. Um, yeah. But yeah, you you only want to use them when um, you got few other choices. Yeah. You know. No, but I think the work that you're doing, the the way you're sharing your content. Um, I think that is very helpful because I know very Good. little about brain. I'm not a, a scientist. I What I have learned has been from books that simplify it for people like me or what I've learned as a student of psychology. I think knowing how your brain functions is very helpful. It sort of gives you a lot of the power back. The other thing that mm -hmm. I have uh, learned through personal experience that has helped me, I'm a very religious person. I've always been very religious. Mm -hmm. For me now, I've reached a point, thanks to the depression that I went through, where I have found a lot of uh, ways to surrender to my spirituality and let that dominate and take care of me. So I have to ask you, because I know that is something that your research focuses on, how religious experiences change our brain, because it's something I feel like there's a lot of power to it. So I definitely want to talk about it. We talked about REM sleep and how it impacts the creativity. How would religious experiences, like actively making that a part of your life, affect 
the sort of experiences you have while you are asleep? How would that affect your creativity? How does it change your brain? Um, good question. Um, first, let me say that um, obviously uh, this applies only to people who have come to the conclusions that you have come to, namely that you know the religious consciousness refers to something real and life-enhancing. It's yeah. not mere delusion or lies or any of that stuff. Um, you know, there may be some BS in religion, but for the most part, there's gold there and it's worth pursuing. So yeah. everything I'm going to say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about that kind of religion where the person finds something life enhancing in it. Now, right. uh, what does it do to the brain? For um, those individuals who, who hold those beliefs as true, and, and then start to live by them, it does many things. It, it adds uh, quite a bit of uh, cognitive protection uh, for you. So, for example, there are very strong positive associations between degree of religiosity up to a certain point and right. uh, protection against risky behaviors like taking drugs, doing alcohol, um, sex at an early age or unprotected sex or, you know, it. Adopting a religious consciousness and practices tends to protect you against those kinds of risky behaviors. And it probably does that for a variety of reasons. In addition, it through its rituals, it tends to support the processes in REM sleep that generate new cellular structures and uh, plasticity so that it, you know, it enhances that kind of um, ability to transform your sense of self into something that you consider an ideal self. We're always trying to build an ideal self, a self that has power, creativity, life-enhancing, um, able, able to enrich other people's lives as well. We want to reach that ideal self. And religion, when it's working properly, has a whole suite of tools to help you get to that ideal self. Everything from rituals to ascetical practices to social um, get-togethers to um, reading sacred texts and going into the archives of thousands of years of experience from people from all over the world saying, look, I suffered and I went through all this and when I interact with supernatural agents, I learn this wisdom See if it works for you, you know. And so there's right. there's a, there's a ton of gold and treasure in all those um, religious traditions. So for all those reasons, um, religion, as we understand it today, um, helps to shape the brain in such a way that it facilitates your working towards that ideal self. Okay, that's uh, that's very helpful. But there was this one idea that was explored in one of your videos that was very fascinating to me that how we uh, approach religion in the sense that some of us uh, lose our sense of agency because we mm -hmm. adopt a completely subservient position versus uh, if we use them to add to our power. And you, mm -hmm. because for me, I would say the dominant idea for me is that God's looking out for me. So let me go ahead and take these risks and be show up in this very confident, very bold way. 
and mm-hmm. he'll he'll help me or she'll help me whatever you choose to believe mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. do you really think that that would how you approach religion would have such a deep impact on your brain that it would alter your personality the experiences you have while you're asleep the experience the way you experience reality and then completely change how you're showing up in the world i think if you take it seriously yeah and i i i'm not sure what uh, video you're referring to but it sounds like what i was trying to say when i said that um many of the religions ask us to when interpreted a certain way ask us to be subservient towards a yes a supernatural agent and um i don't think that's a good idea i think the gods and goddesses and uh, the god in the abrahamic traditions wants a full free powerful creative adult rational agents not mere servants in fact there i mean uh, in the christian scriptures jesus says i call you friends not servants um and i know that there are similar and and other sacred texts and other religious traditions you got the same message you know so i think there there's been traditions in all the world religions to ask us to shut up and just do whatever the gods tell us to do yeah but i think there's another set of traditions in all the world's religious traditions that say well no the gods want us to get up off our knees and start to collaborate with them to create life enhancing uh, ecologies and environments and social situations for human beings you know like um now yes we've got to if we take um religion seriously and the gods as real uh we should reverence them but that doesn't mean we have to shut our minds down you know yes. and just be quote unquote servants you know um so anyway that's that's my two cents worth that's and that's that's just from my experience you know and yeah. but whoever is listening look to your traditions not to me i'm no expert on how to interact with the gods you know i i i'm not look to your traditions and what um resonates with you and what seems right to you no i think that's what you've shared is very very helpful because uh, doing the work that i do i often meet people because a lot of people know that i have i believe in god i'm very i'm not re- ritualistically religious but i'm very invested in the teachings so they would often I think people who give up that power where they're like I am a servant to my faith I have a very they're not as proactive they're not as involved in creating their own reality because they have almost given up their mm-hmm. their the weapons that they do have um so no what you've shared is incredibly helpful but I I have to ask and you can always choose not to answer this and that would be perfectly okay but all of the knowledge that you've shared with me the the spiritual uh, inclination of yours and your uh, the rem sleep stuff the dream the all the power that it offers us how you've channeled it into your in your life i would love to know that yeah that's a good question i'm not sure i've done such a good job of it i mean i struggle with it every day you know and um i try to be as good a scientist as i can and contribute to scientific knowledge and i think i've done that yes and that's um sometimes you know it's it's all we can ask of a person you know it's like okay 
contribute as much as you can to the world's base of knowledge. And yes. hopefully that knowledge will enrich other people's lives. Um, and I, I use whatever I learn in my own life to um, um, have compassion for myself and for all those around me. Um, you know, when all is said and done, that's what helps us get through the difficulties and challenges of life, it seems to me. That sounds very simple-minded, but um, I tend to forget that, you know. So I need to remind myself of that every day, and I think the science is consistent with that kind of attitude. Yes. You know, like um, life is hard, so take it day by day. Use your rationality to understand it and get to the of the matter, get to ultimate reality. Life is a chance to reach that ultimate reality. So go for it, you know. Use your brain, your mind, your spirit, your heart. Go for the ultimate reality, you know. And then share it. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. And I think that comes across in the way you share the knowledge that you have. Uh, so that I think that's the that science scientific attitude um but i have to ask you because i am almost on a <laughs> regular basis spooked by the variety of experiences my brain creates for me and considering this is like this is what you do this is your main job in life like you're constantly going deeper and deeper into brain's capabilities are you ever spooked by it like are you ever very left feeling very abandoned that there's so much you'll never know and you've no idea like how much uh, remains under the layers and what you've already known is so massive are you ever spooked by it it's a silly question but i am curious about no, it no no it's a it's a great question um i mean <laughs> and, and this is going to sound a bit trite but it's absolutely true in any science and i think indeed in any um spiritual pursuit. If you don't become more and more humble over time, then you're you're not really realizing how deeply you're penetrating the mystery, you know, because the deeper you go into a mystery, the more you find out how little you really know and how much there is to know, you know, and and that um, forces on you, uh, the, to me, the scientific attitude, you know, like deep curiosity, awe and wonder, but a very sort of humble attitude like wow this is big i may never penetrate to the you uh, know but i'm going to go for it you know and learn as much as i possibly can because um there's nothing more exciting than the than the truth you know so yeah. um i think the more i know the the more i realize how little i know yeah like socrates <laughs> well exactly yeah. he's perfect example <laughs> he, he was the smartest guy because he realized he knew very little yeah okay how do we improve our REM sleep sleep hygiene basic sleep hygiene practices okay. so okay. Um, you know very common sense things don't drink a lot of coffee uh, don't do a lot of alcohol and drugs uh, okay. Go to bed at a regular time. Don't bring your smartphone into bed with you. Exercise daily. Standard sleep hygiene, and you'll get very good REM sleep. Okay, okay, that's helpful. That's easy to follow also. Now, I have to ask about the hallucinogenic experiences, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. That keeps coming up more and more now. People are very uh, interested in finding out more, but there's also, understandably, a lot of fear around it. Like, what utility does it offer, if any, and how do we 
like for so I've never done psychedelics. Where do we start if we we want to uh, go down this path? Well, uh, there's, as you probably know, been a revolution in scientific knowledge of what psychedelics do, at least the serotonergic psychedelics, what they do to the brain and stuff like that. And there's been um, clinical trials on them, double-blinded, placebo-controlled experiments done to see if they improve things like depression or all kinds of um, distress states and the addiction. So the results tend to indicate that there is improvement in mood with one session with a psychedelic. Um, so they look promising, at least the so-called serotonergic psychedelics. Not so, uh, Ketamine is still, there's still a lot of controversy about that, but um, things like psilocybin and LSD, there's pretty good reliable data that it, with one session under the controlled setting conditions of a clinic or laboratory, helps with mood when a person is previously depressed. So whether serotonergics will help with all kinds of other disorders, that's all under um, active investigation now. For a person who wants to look into psychedelics, I recommend that, that you, you don't do it alone. You do it in a ritual setting with people you trust and preferably with uh, one, one of these clinics, you know, trained professionals. Um, and don't do high doses, um, obviously. Right. Um, although right. it's it, you, you probably won't die from a high dose, but if, if you have a vulnerable psyche to start with and you do a high-dose psychedelic, it's asking for trouble. So yeah. um, proceed with caution. But I'm hopeful that psychedelics are going to be another um, tool we can use to help people with mood disorders in particular. Okay, I've I've no knowledge around it. So uh, can you please let me know the the drugs that you mentioned, the psychedelic drugs that you mentioned, are those like similar to mushrooms? Because what I understand, yeah. mushroom is like the, the starting point, which is the easiest to access. Yeah, psilocybin okay. basically comes from mushroom. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and then there's of course ayahuasca, which is this uh, um, drink that was discovered and developed in South South America. Um, but is being used quite a bit by um, westernized peoples now. But the mechanisms are basically the same. They all work on these uh, 5-HT2A signaling systems that I mentioned earlier. So they, they increase brain plasticity, for example. Um, however, they do it in, in one big fell swoop, and it happens to you all DMT, happens in about 20 minutes, ayahuasca okay, over several okay. hours and psilocybin and LSD over several hours. And, but in any case, it's a very intense experience. And so it's, you know, it shouldn't be undertaken without serious spiritual intent, in my opinion. Of course, people do it all the time with no ill effects, just for fun. But in right. my opinion, it's, they're powerful agents and, particularly with people with vulnerable psyches, you should not, it's playing with fire. Okay, that's good to know because um, we do hear a lot of, when we talk to these people who have these very um, focused 
groups of intellectual people, uh, highly intellectual people who innovate almost constantly, they often talk about using psychedelics to enhance their genius, so to say. And they do it in a very casual way, like taking supplements. Yeah. It's so much a part of their lifestyle. Uh, is there any... Does that seem like a viable option, making it so much a part of your life that you are using it whenever you are in a highly, when you're in that period of your uh, work where you are innovating almost constantly? I, I don't think there's any good experimental evidence that microdosing with these agents right. enhances creativity over time. However, the people who are doing it claims, you know, they claim it really does. Um, but I have not seen any controlled studies to prove that. So okay. I would be skeptical myself. Okay. I found uh, this article that was sharing someone's, it was anecdotal evidence. A few people shared that they could see more colors when they were under the influence of psychedelics. And apparently oh, no. human beings can only see three colors. And there are so many more mm. colors in the, the universe. So that was very fascinating to me. So apparently it can also impact your senses and what you can will like delimit your perception in a way. Well, there's no no question that psychedelics at at higher doses, not microdosing, but psychedelics at higher doses absolutely have these profound effects on the senses. Absolutely no question. And on the brain, you know, major massive effects. And to me, um particularly when you go when you um what we call uh, demodulate the default mode network, then your your brain is reset into this whole other state and you have access to these just extraordinary realms. So um, yes, uh, psychedelics have those incredible effects and we should experimentally explore them. Uh, but I think what's going on with microdosing is to get back to REM sleep is that it disinhibits REM sleep so you, you microdose, you get small doses of these agents, and that releases REM sleep. So it starts to intrude during daytime. And so they have these uh, periods of dreamy states, colorful states with lots of images. And yeah, to me, that's just REM intruding into daytime consciousness. Okay, okay. And that's not necessarily a good thing, you know, over time. Yeah. What that makes me wonder, like what we talked about, lucid dreaming, is there a way to connect the psychedelic experience to lucid dreaming the way you described it in itself sounds such a powerful, if you can channel it, it sounds such a powerful thing that could completely alter your life and personality. And then to use psychedelics in any way would further amplify that. Is that possible to do? There's initial evidence that uh, people who use psychedelics regularly tend to have more lucid dreams. But to me, what that suggests is that, you know, the, you're, you're, you're taking these tools and you're saying, let's disinhibit REM sleep, you know, on a major basis, day after day after day after day. And eventually you start to have lucid dreams. And now REM sleep is invading all your brain states, not just waking consciousness, but it's, it's starting to invade slow wave sleep and all the other sleep stages. And and for a while, that means you're enormously creative and you're having all these insights and everything's amazing. But after a while, you pay very high prices. You start to lose quality sleep. Everything that slow wave sleep was supposed to be doing, it can't be doing because REM sleep is 
invading it, you know? So there's all these other physiological functions that are being neglected because you've unleashed REM by microdosing or by taking lots of psychedelics and going into lucid dreams um, too often, you know? So everything requires balance. This is a wide open frontier and there's experimental controlled studies going on on all aspects of this. And we simply don't know enough yet to say anything definitive, but I'm really glad we're investigating. I think it's, it's going to teach us major, major things about creativity, about spirituality, about mood disorders, about the brain. Yeah. It's going to, it's, it's going to be a revolution in all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, we have to approach it cautiously, as you said. But please proceed with caution. <laughs> yeah. There was this very fascinating discussion going on on Reddit, as unreliable as Reddit can be. But there was something that someone mentioned about, uh, again, they were hearing voices, having hallucinations, and they had it during depression. And then it would show up every once in a while in their life whenever they would go without sleep for too long. And then someone mentioned that now your brain is simply more susceptible to these experiences because there was an intense period of this experience. Mm -hmm. And to me, that made sense even though i i don't know if that person had any kind of uh, like knowledge around this area or not but that made sense that if your brain has been able to access these states for you even if it was causing distress your brain would be more susceptible whenever under any kind of emotional trauma or any kind of stress does that make any sense or i I think it does myself (laughs) no no i think it does but i i would hasten to add though that um that person is not stuck, so to speak, and always being um, open to hearing voices all the time just because they're, they've accustomed their brain to being open to those kinds of influences. It doesn't mean that that's going to be that way for the rest of their lives. You know, okay. if they want that to go away, there's ways to make that to go away. Okay. And would that translate to psychedelics also? Like if you've done psychedelics in the way that you recommend that people do it, would the effects linger even without the uh, effect of psychedelics? Or would that completely, like you would revert back to normal completely? Well, the, the, the studies show that um, some of the beneficial effects, like when people go into mystical states, some of the beneficial effects of that last for at least six months afterwards. Right. Okay. Um, and there have been there have been um, controlled studies of people um, like, uh, you know, that trip you did 20 years ago. Are you still having any experiences from that? And yeah. people will say yes. Okay. okay. There's a very f- famous um, experiment called the, the Marsh Chapel experiment that was done in the 1960s where people were given psilocybin during a Christian service at um, Boston University's Marsh Chapel. And they had very intense psychedelic experiences during the service. And I think maybe there was like 10, 15 people involved in it. And those 10 or 15 people were tracked down like 20 or 30 years later and interviewed about that experience. And every single one of them said, yeah, I'm still having, um, still deriving insight from it, still integrating it. 30 years later. Wow. So they're powerful experiences. Yeah. Further, another note of caution there. That, yeah. That's helpful. 
So there is this one question that I have to ask you in this age of AI with all of these things happening, putting together robots that can do all kinds of things. If you had the power to create like a whole new being that would in some ways be superior to humans, that would definitely be superior to humans if you were mindfully putting it together, what would be the, the features that that species would have to make it fully effective? If you could take anything across species, like anything from any being. Well, you'd have to... I, I would personally want to um, program into its DNA, so to speak, to do no harm to human uh -huh. beings. Yes. As a you know, a absolute first principle. Right. And and then I would design it or program it so that it could um, write its own programs and escalate its um, intelligence algorithms, so that it can engage in what we call cumulative learning so that it learns a body of knowledge up to level X. But then when it starts the next cycle of learning, it doesn't go back to uh, zero, goes back to X, and then it right. builds on it. And it builds yeah. and builds and builds and builds so that you have cumulative learning. And that way you get super intelligence pretty quickly. And as long as that, the, the primary directive, so to speak, do no harm to humans, yeah. is guiding it all, then what you would have at the service of human beings is this set of intelligences that so far advanced about what we can do on a global scale that it would really revolutionize, I mean, everything about our lives, you know, right. get us to other planets. I mean, it's just unbelievable what I mean, what a super intelligence could do. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And with the principle of do no harm dominating its uh, actions, that would be very helpful. But there's the rub. Nobody's figured out how to do that. Yeah. You know, so this is just, you know, like So we're realizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, my last super juvenile question. I don't know if this is something you've already experienced or not, but with everything we've discussed today, if you were to ever encounter, because, you know, people always talk about going to haunted houses, going to all of these spooky places that people warn you against. If you were to ever meet something that you cannot rationally explain away, like it's standing right there, it seems to be a spirit, ghost, what would your first reaction be in an event like that? And what if you also do psychedelics and then you just don't know what's up? <laughs> people who have done psychedelics experience that every day. At least that's what they report. Um, if if I experienced that, I would treat the entity with extreme caution and respect. And um, respect in the sense that it's like, a, you know, if you came across a very poisonous wild snake in the woods and you right. could barely see it, you know, mm -hmm. you'd proceed with extreme caution. You know, it's something that could really harm you if you made the wrong move or something, you know. So that's that's how if I mean, the thing you presented me with, OK, there's this supernatural agent and it seems to be de demonic <laughs> in some way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If I if I experience that, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say, oh, it's just just an illusion, a delusion. Right. I can just laugh at it. No, mm -hmm, I would treat mm -hmm. it with um, caution. Yeah. And avoid it I at think, all costs. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. We have these places in India, especially India is filled with places like that, that are very mystical. And people are always planning to go there. And I'm like, why would you do that? You don't know what you're going to find in there. And but it's it's fascinating. I think if I were in a situation like that, I would conveniently pass on. <laughs> I, I, I often ask myself, like, why do a lot of people expose themselves to horror movies? You know, these. Yeah, they, they go to a horror movie and there's these horrifying images. Those images get into your mind brain and then you got to deal with them. Yeah. Um, and yet it, some people find it appealing. To me, it's yes. inviting. I, I'd rather not invite uh, those kinds of um, horrifying images into my mind. If I, can, if I have a choice about it. Yeah. yeah, this was so amazing, Dr. McNamara. Thank you so very, very much for taking the time out to do this. It was amazing. Thank you for inviting me, Krati. Well, what do you know? We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, for supporting the podcast, and for sharing your time with me. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show on whatever podcast platform you love. You can also watch the video version of the interviews and most of the solo episodes on my YouTube channel. Link is in the episode description. Now, if you've made it this far, you must love the content at least a little bit, or maybe you just like hanging out with me, or there was something in this particular episode that resonated with you. Or maybe it's all of those things. I would love to know. So if you've got a minute, it will be great if you can drop a review on Apple Podcasts or you can send me your thoughts on the show via email. Now, if you want content that goes deeper than even the podcast does with a lot of real life stories, one-on-one interactions, or just become part of my tribe, subscribe to my weekly newsletter. The link is in the episode description. Once again, thank you so, so much for sharing your time with me. Take care and I will be back soon with the next episode.